Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 100 years ago, in the face of crisis and depression, workers across the world fought for good wages and strong unions. The result? Lots of things got better. So what happened? Numerically, unions have been on the decline for a while across the Western world, but those scary graphs hide the spark of some pretty amazing organising work that is also happening. This week, we're speaking to a woman who's been both doing and writing about amazing and less amazing union campaigns in the US and beyond. Our Changemaker Chat is with Jane McAlevey. Jane has written a bunch of books about organising, the most well-known of which is No Shortcuts. Jane is unusual because she's both a doer and a thinker. She shares a bit of that journey with us today. Want to know what's needed for unions to grow and thrive again? Well, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Jane McAlevey, welcome to Changemakers. It is so great to be with you here, Amanda Tattersall. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I have wanted to be able to do this interview for a while. I'm a little bit of a fan of your work, so it's delightful to well, have you on the mutual, show. Well, so that makes that's going to make it a good discussion. Let's hope so. So, you know, we always ask our, our guests what kind of change maker you are. In some ways, I don't feel like that's a mystery given your you, uh, strong, fierce union organizing. But how would you describe the kind of change that you try and make in the world? I'm pausing because right now I feel like just saying all of it. I mean, that's like my first, my first reaction is when you look around at the slew, you know, of crises surrounding every species on the planet, the planet, and in particular the working class, which is a lot of my my day to day focus. I would say the kind of change I'm trying to make is helping people come to an understanding that there is this thing called power, that uh, power exists, that very nice people who are progressive, liberal, I don't know, fill in the blank, uh, you know, kind of r- r- like shrug their shoulders and wince their eyes sometimes and curl up their toes thinking that power is somehow bad. And I'm trying to help people understand both what power is, how it works, 
and how ordinary people can actually build enough of it to reset the insanity that's going on um, all over this globe. So I think I'm really exceptionally focused on power. And that means dabbling in the environmental movement and all sorts of related causes because, you know, workers, even though that's my day-to-day focus in the trade union movement, you know, workers are not, uh, you know, robots, thank God, yet, right? So they've got a whole host of concerns. And I don't think that what they're getting paid at work, whether or not they have a decent job or benefits, is sufficient for a sophisticated labor movement, uh, the kind that's going to be required to actually make the kind of changes that we need right now. So, yeah. Yeah, so simple task, building enough power across the world to make the world a better place for those who labour to make the world interesting. Okay, that sounds simple and straightforward, a life's work, maybe slightly more. So what I'm interested in, uh, in particular, even more so than what you do, is why you do it and how you came to it. And I mean, I'm and our listeners, I am sure, are interested in the long story around why you fight so fiercely and also where this reflective capacity comes from. Because you don't just uh, battle with others. You actually have spent enormous amounts of time writing and reflecting on how the battle should be staged and what makes the battle likely to be successful. Tell us a little bit about where where those capacities come from. Indulge us in a couple of stories from your past that were formative. You know, I have been dwelling on one of them a lot this year because my father, who primarily raised me, along with siblings, because my mother died when I was very young. Not not too long after diapers, uh, she began to die. And uh, so I was raised by my father and then by a lot of siblings, which was great that I'm the youngest of nine. So some of my sisters and brothers might say that they raised me, but I was I was so little that I was dragged around by my father, who was a politician. Um, by the time I was born, he was already fairly significant politician in the state of New York. And he was, let's say, controversial. And he was running a very bold, what I think of, well, today would be considered, you know, communism or something in the ridiculous discussions that go on in the United States. But I would say that my father, in a way that could people could relate to, is sort of like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, a Bernie Sanders type. He understood the intersection of race, class, and gender way before, you know, a lot of people, certainly office holders. And so I learned a lot about the intersection of issues from being dragged around from one campaign stop to the next, from one picket line to the next, from one protest where he was building the first sort of public affordable housing outside of New York City in New York. And violence was wrought a little bit on the house because of that. You know, there's a lot of racist people around. So I think my childhood was shaped by someone who was very serious about changing the world or doing his part. And there's no question uh, that he put that into all of his children. I mean, every kid in my family. I would just say the funny thing about my family is so different in one respect than a lot. The only thing we all agree on is politics. And so at big family gatherings, like holidays, like the only safe topic like in my family. That's the of every family. Exactly. Right? I like, love it. Like every, everyone will start fighting about like which wife. He had many wives. I mean, there's a lot of issues. Do you know what I mean? So it's like if you get into any issue that has to do with anything that isn't politics in my family, you run the risk of starting a huge hateful uh, argument at the dinner table with 40 people around it. And all you have to do is say Bernie Sanders versus Hillary. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, it totally should have been Bernie. And he would have had it, you know? So that, um, 
gives you a little sense of it. But the part I've been dwelling on, because he died earlier this year at the almost ripe age of 98, is he was a he was the wingman to the ace fighter pilot for the U.S. fighting the Nazis in Germany. So the wing ace to the wingman is this very, I mean, wingman to the ace, I should say. He was the wingman to the ace in the European theater for the U.S. Um, it was still the Air Force then. You know, and he, so he grew up in a very working class family. His, his you know, father was a boilermaker in the Boilermakers Union, you know, shoving coal into buildings in New York City. His entire orientation being born in the U.S., the Great Depression in the U.S., you know, was to respect the values of ordinary people and how hard they worked. And then he jumped into the war, you know, as soon as the U.S. said, we're going to go. He lied about his age, jumped in, and became a top fighter pilot. So a lot of our, a lot of what shaped us, I think, is his core value that he would say to us, this gets back to power. And I really think that he I don't know if you put this into me genetically and or social culturally, but frequently he would say to me, you can't do your power and strategy wrong because the guys won't come home with you. They'll just be dead. And it sounds dramatic, but it was such a clear uh, message from him. And I think it's why my life obsession is uh, one to beat the fascists. You better not do your strategy wrong. And so uh, that was drilled into me, like as like, like he was like a drill sergeant about power and strategy. So too in his political campaigns, you know, he had tremendous adversaries given the politics. He was challenging, you know, unfettered growth and things that you couldn't even try to challenge right now. So yeah, I think the fighter pilot gene and the deep message that if you do your strategy wrong, it has really serious consequences is how I grew up which is why I spend so much time trying to teach tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands at this point of people. And the books are just another way to do it, you know, to say, look, people, you got to get the strategy right here because we're doing a lot wrong. And to get the strategy right, you actually have to understand the power structure analysis. And if we can do both of those pieces and include everybody involved in any campaign with those pieces, we stand a hell of a lot better chance to win. Yeah. Yeah. The stakes are high in these battles. It's no, there's no mucking around. This stuff really matters and you've got to get it right. Now in school and then through your early career, before you took up residency in the labor movement and with the labor movement, you had a melting pot of experiences. Like it's fascinating how many different social movements that you were involved in beyond the, you know, the student, student activism, you spent time in Central America, you were in the environment movement, you worked with the Highlander Center, you know, that leading light for education. What lessons from those spaces? Um, and then you spent time as an organiser in the labour movement, like before you started writing about as an organiser. What lessons ha- from those different movements have lingered in your practice? Are there times or moments that you keep with you as you sort of think about the sort of work you try and do now that came and arose at those times? Definitely. Not even a question. And going almost in reverse, I feel seems to me that the the approach I take to everything, you know, I did have still am still doing, uh, depending on the moment, trade union campaigns. Um, I go in and out all the time, right? I'm actually running one and then I reflect and write a book and then I run a big one. And so I'm not done running them at all, by any stretch. But I think that the Highlander years, living in Tennessee and working at the Highlander Research and Education Center, shaped definitely shaped my approach to the trade union movement and to workers. So for example, 
my deep belief in what I call big and open negotiations. Uh, the most small D democratic practice, I believe a union can practice. And I think I don't, I don't ever talk about it as like some kind of principle of union democracy. Cause frankly, uh, okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I think that union democracy genuinely matters very much, but I'm not interested in debating what that looks like and passing resolutions about it. I just want to do it. And so in doing big and open negotiations, where literally thousands of workers will join us at the table in one contract fight, either for an hour, five hours, or they'll be there every damn session, depending on who the worker is. To me, that reflects my understanding that negotiations are nothing more than the best tool for popular and political education possible with people who share no political values. All they share is that the employer hired them and they have a job. And at least a third of every worker I've ever worked at least a third of the workforce, one third, at least, of every workforce I have engaged with in campaigns for 25 years is made up of Republicans, conservatives, uh, libertarians, right? And if you're in the public sector, that gets a little tricky. Um, and then a bunch of Democrats. But why I love union organizing is because it, it's, the, it's the challenge of can you actually build common understanding and solidarity across very different people, right? Which is why I'm sticking with it, despite all the challenges of the trade union movement. So, but so I, I took, I took approaching every single piece of the work as an opportunity for radical, popular, and political education. That's one. From the environmental movement, I took uh, that the planet's dying, and it's and the, those who will be hurt from it are mostly people of color and women, and poor people. And that in order to sort of try and reset the power structure around the environmental crisis and the power of the fossil fuel industry, from my view, it could only be done by actually going into the trade union movement and carrying a deep message about how fossil fuels, poison, climate change, and all of it is actually attacking the lives and livelihoods of working class and poor people more than anyone else. And so I never, I never talk to a worker like, Hey, what do you think about, you know, Ida that just wrecked half of the United States and there's still power off and, you know, one storm after another. And I'm in California right now and we're having 153 on the air quality index today, which means you shouldn't go outdoors. So it, the approach to a worker is not boy, this environmental crisis is really horrible. You know, what do you think about that? Should we put a resolution across the table to the employer or come up with some something that just says we think, you know, everyone should divest from fossil fuels? It's not going to work with a bunch of conservative workers, right, who have had it beaten into their heads that climate change is something made up, you know, by either China or whoever it is. So how you actually come at the process of helping them come to understand in their own terms the connection between why their kids are sick, the river they live next to, the plant they work in, the chemicals inside the plant, the chemicals outside the plant, you know, uh, how you come to that conversation in a way that's going to make sense to a worker um, is far more interesting to me, I think, and effective than, you know, wearing a button that says, you know, end fossil fuels today or something. So all of the pieces of my past work uh, come together. And then certainly, in, I mean, you know, I mean, I worked in Central America for a number of years, traveled all through South America extensively, but worked in Central America 
trying to end U.S. Uh, wars in the region and our support for them when I was very, very young, sort of my first real full-time work. And, you know, super meaningful. I think, like, there is no question that every single Central American immigrant who's trying to get into the United States is coming here because we destroyed their countries. We just destroyed them. So how dare we then not even let them in when they come to seek solace and want to come and do a hard day's work? You know, it's just... I don't think I can't easily pull apart all of those, any of those strings from the other. Yeah. And, and, and that's the point, isn't it? That our interconnected lives can't be isolated in silos that are segmented, even though so many of our movements see things in silos, actually the art of powerful politics and the art of understanding power is to see the interconnections across them that you were taught as a child. Um, Exactly. Exactly. Which is lucky. Bless your father, hey? Like that's an extraordinary gift. So my final thing, and I, and, I, and I wonder if this also comes a little bit from what you learned from your father about the sort of the stakes of the battle. But, you know, I'm interested in you describing, you, you mentioned, you've mentioned, and we know that you've written a bunch of books and you've done a PhD, but what role does that reflective process, you know, do a, run a strike and then write a book is not an is not an ordinary practice, right? There's not, it's not what's typically done. Part of me wonders to what extent your father, by saying the stakes are so high, don't get it fucking wrong, makes a difference as a, as a message, therefore the power of reflection. But, but why else? Why have you chosen this uh, idiosyncratic pattern of, of battle hard, then, re- then, then reflection? The first book was an accident and the PhD was sort of an accident. And that's really real. So I got diagnosed with cancer in 2009. And it was the first time I ever was literally forced to stop work. I mean, actually, I kept trying to do work. Like I took, I said, okay, well, I'll just take a consulting gig. And I was advising some very progressive building and construction trades leaders. I love when I get a chance to work with building and construction trade leaders who want to be pro-immigrant, good to the planet. You know, they're just some of my favorites. So I, I remember shortly after the diagnosis, I said, oh, okay, well, I, I, will also, I won't run a campaign right now, but I'm going to work with these guys who are trying to figure out this whole analysis about how to take the residential sector union again, because it's got, it's residential construction is completely non-union in the United States. It's really, um, you know, commercial construction is what is left to the building trade. So it was a smart campaign and they were like, we totally need power and strategy and help. And I was like, great. I remember walking back into Sloan, Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is the cancer center where I spent a good 18 months of my life in 2009 and 2010. And they said, no, you're not going to work at all. Like, do you understand you're not working right now? You have one job, which is to beat the cancer. And that's the only job you can have. So I was slow to even understanding like about what was about to happen in a way that my very smart lead, like the leader of my team, you know, I was very lucky to have trade union benefits. And so I could go to a great healthcare system. Most people can't, you know, and it was sort of in the sit down with me where they said, yeah, you don't quite understand. You're not working. You're just not working. So that forced the first round of reflection. A lot of my friends knew I was immediately going to go completely nuts, like less from the cancer. For me, that was like, that was like a war. Like I just fought the cancer like a campaign. Okay. Step one, step two, step three. What are the options here? Strategic choices. I'm going to listen to you, Mr. Expert over here. Great. Let's just go that direction. You know, it was sort of the first time that I was surrendering to just other people's direction entirely, which was its own interesting experience for me. And then a lot of my friends said, you should just be writing this whole time. You just need to write. 
like write about every campaign that you've run to date. Just start writing McAlevey when you're bored in a hospital bed or bored at home in between surgeries or procedures. And so raising expectations and raising hell uh, was an accident. So I, I write that over about nine months and I just wrote a chronological story from entering the trade union movement and 10 years of just winning every goddamn campaign we launched and they were big and they were complex and they were fun and they were great. And I thought, I'm so sick of the dialogue. So now we're in, we're in about two, yeah, 2008. It's a big year in the US labor movement, right? There's a lot of mostly bad things, bad decisions happening about strategy in the US. They're all fracturing. The unions are all pulling out of the AFL. It's just a, it's just a ridiculous time. Look at the power analysis. This is not time to fracture. It's time to actually congeal, but whatever. So it was a combination of internal warfare going on around me as I was forced to stop working. And then I began to write and I thought, I don't understand why the dialogue is that workers can't win when we just had 10 years of hellaciously good campaigns and they won every time. Seems to me like we need to talk about the fact that workers can still win and how they win. So round one was accidental. I finish it. A good friend of mine edits it. He's actually written a bunch of books. So he does an edit on it sent it off to Francis Fox Piven and like the three people I knew who had written books, who had been on panels with her, you know, as the organizer and she was the academic. Um, and three days after I sent a manuscript to Francis Fox Piven, who I didn't know well, you know, I just knew her well enough to ask her to, to read it. And she, again, we'd been on panels, so she knew of my work. And three days later, she sent me an email and said, I'd like to talk to you immediately. You know, I wrote this note, like, is this any good? I don't know what this is. It could be a letter to my nieces. It's fine. And she said, this is going to be a book very quickly. And you need to enroll in a PhD program with me basically right away. And you need to write wow. another version of this book. And, and for said, people who don't know Francis Fox Piven, sorry, I mean, she yes. is a rock star academic, but also engaged in poor people's movements for decades and decades. Like she is a total rock star. So this is like, this is huge, this endorsement. Yeah. And I don't even, you know, and I don't, I'm not even sure I quite get it yet. Cause remember I, I have nothing to do with the world of books at this point. I've barely written an article. Like this is just not... You know, I can't give you a breakdown of how it works. I don't know a thing about writing a book. So I said to her, really? Like, I was really surprised. I was like, really? She was like, no, no. She's like, yeah, let me take care of this. Like, you're going to have a book. And she said, but I'm insisting. She said, when this book comes out, you will be in trouble with the national labor movement. Yes, and you I, must I, come I can to imagine. <laughs> and I was not thinking that. I was just thinking I'm about to die. I don't care. I'm right whenever I want to write. You know what I mean? That's what I thought. So that's what I did. And that's why that book has that tone. And... But it was, but she was so super clear. She said, you know, you will, you will be making a huge contribution to the movement. Rank and file workers will understand what it is that they're supposed to be doing and their union should be doing. And you will be getting a lot of heat from several national unions. And I recommend that you duck very quickly into a PhD. I recommend you do it with me. Um, and you write a second book that's going to have a different audience. It's not going to, you know, it's going to have citations, Jane. There's like none in my first book. It's just, you know, I just <laughs> typed. So it was like my, the whole book is like a long essay. It's my opinion, you know, and my, and then like stories of victory, right? So there's literally hardly a citation, except where I had to citate the legal evidence of being beaten up by a union buster in an elevator in Nevada. That, that they made me find a site for. But anyway, that was like police records. But anyway, so Francis said, you know, get into a PhD. And I said, there's a problem, Francis, because I dropped out of college. Like, I don't even have a BA. Can you get me into a PhD without a BA? I mean, it's a very funny story. So a whole lot of things had to happen very quickly. I said, 
I'm not going to finish my undergraduate degree. I'm not going to pay for it. I'm not going to put a penny into this. I'm not going to study for the GRE, the graduate entrance exams. I'll probably flunk the math ones because I can't do math. And she was like, this is all in one call. And she was like, yes, yes, yes. Okay. We're not going to work this all out now. Just, just follow my lead. And a month later, I had been accepted to City University of New York with a fellowship wow. and a scholarship. And I, we were like a month from deadline. She's like, you must do the following things now. You must take the graduate entrance exams. I don't care your score. You have to take. Like, she just gave me this to-do list. And like I just, the doctors, I was like, like the doctors in yes. a way. <laughs> and, I, and people always say, oh, is this a joke about me? You know, people say, you know, people always say it must be hard to get you to listen to people. And I always say that's because you don't know me well. If someone with a half a brain or a serious brain comes to me with a plan, I'll surrender in a second. You know, the problem is a lot of people don't have that kind of a plan and uh, you're damn right. I'm not going to trust them. So I surrendered to Francis um, immediately. I actually got, she actually said, do another place just in case. And Dan Clausen, rest in peace at UMass, got me basically the same deal. And then I was staring down because Dan had been writing about my work. So then Dan was like, wait, come here. So suddenly I had like two Oh, wow, you were bargaining offers. off against each other. No. <laughs> so my calculation was I could remain being bicoastal if I did New York, not Western Mass. And I told Dan I was so sorry. But then I put him on my committee. So, you know, I got the best of both there. And that's how I sort of accidentally got into a PhD. And I mean that sort of genuinely. And I will say in retrospect, it was terrific time for me. That was a terrific time where I got to seriously reflect by reading, by reading history, by reading a lot of contemporary literature, by reading something by I believe you, but I'm kidding. I'm like, of course by you. Like I, like I, there were a lot of people who I'd never even heard of, right? I was just running campaigns 18 hours a day for 25 years. So the five-year pause, the five years of the PhD was just great for me. And I'm, I think I was, I'm still surprised all the time that no shortcuts has become this sort of like, you know, very popular. I'll just say, extremely book. well-read Bible for unionists around the world. Is, is it, are they the words you're looking for, Jane? Because I know that's I true. I don't know. I don't know. But now with sunrise, now the climate kids are all reading it together in big yes, study groups. So, you yeah, know, it's the just, environment movements reading it too. It's really there's something quite potent in it. You know, and that you know that's what I. That's so I'm going to you know credit. Uh, Frances Fox Piven uh, and Dan Clausen, uh, just brilliant committee members who 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 knew my work. So it was also working with academics who themselves were reflective and at least very connected to the movement. They weren't leading campaigns, but they were deeply tied, as deeply tied as a traditional academic gets. Both of my committee, my lead committee members were. So they forced it, and that. And yeah, my ongoing surprise at the success of that book, and not success, like in a monetary way, I could give a crap. It's like that people will say, well, my entire approach to work changed after I read that book. That's a credit to a slower process on a book, to thinking a lot about it, to having very, very smart people reading every chapter and saying, you can do better. You know, you can go a little deeper here. You know, it's almost like, Jane, you had to take no shortcuts on thinking through organizing in order to produce no shortcuts as an outcome. That's what I'm hearing here. Like the slower yes. process is so important. Yeah, definitely. I think it will, I think it will always wind up being the best book because I don't have that kind of patience or five years, you know, the next one I wrote in like six months, which I think it could have used two more rounds of editing, but to detail, but you know, they get faster and faster now. And so anyway, yeah. 
Yeah. Slow, slow, slow is good, uh, I think, in a book process. So what I want to turn to now is some of some of the elements you describe in in no shortcuts and in collective bargain as well, um, and actually practice, you know, in, in the trainings that you run around the world that are also equally extraordinary. I want you to talk to us a little bit about your your approach to organizing, because that at the heart of it, what is organizing and what is it different to you make a strong case between contrasting the practice of mobilizing and organizing. And you run through a bunch of elements that that organizing requires in terms of the people that are involved, the role of organization, leadership, all those questions. Talk to us about you know how you, your approach to organizing, what makes it distinct. For one thing, I would say Everything I do came from brilliant mentors before me. Just to be clear, you know, I always say to people, I did not invent these methods. I probably integrated them, like the community, the power analysis, and the like seeing that understanding every worker as a whole person. I think if there's one clear actual contribution I made that didn't come directly from mentors, it was probably that. Although some of that has its roots in Highlander and the environmental justice movement leaders who came before my trade union time who did have an understanding, you know, that the working class and the people of color, that they had a set of issues that were larger than just how much money they got paid, right? So I think the principle starts with, starts there. I mean, it starts with workers aren't just workers at work. They're complicated, beautiful, textured people with very interesting lives, uh, if you stop and listen. And secondly, I've said this many times, and I'm happy to say it all the time for the rest of my life. I really believe you have to genuinely love and respect ordinary people in order to do the kind of work that we do and do it well. You have to believe in their capacities. And I've always believed in their capacities. You know, again, back to a gift from the old man in some ways from my father. But, you know, I've always believed in the capacities of ordinary people. And I'm struck, I'm probably struck in every single campaign, how many times I meet a worker who's doing any number of fill in the job. I don't care if they're cooks, cleaners, nurses, whatever they are. And, and in a house call, meaning we've gone to their house unannounced and we've knocked on the door and now we're in, if we are doing our job right, you know, hopefully there's a worker with us from the facility and we're in the living room. And how much that changes the dynamic of the conversation, how much I can see about a person's life when I'm at their home and how much I can spend time really digging into like who they are. So I have genuine fascination uh, for almost every single person that I talk to and I meet. And I learn incredible things about what these people do in their spare time, like organize 3,000 person, you know, mutual solidarity things to deliver food uh, through their church to people or, and actually, I mean, figure it out, like organize the whole thing. And I'm like, ah, this one's got some good skills for a campaign. You know what I mean? But so I think, I think that's foundational before the methods come. The foundational principle is, do you believe in the capacities of ordinary people? And I do. I always just say I do. Like, I don't know. I just marry the whole class. Like, I do, you know? So, and since I didn't marry anyone else, I just marry my work, but because I love it. So that's one. And then two, I think the, the principles that, that relate to the methods, the principles are that in order for people to take the kind of risk that is going to be required in the kind of campaigns they run, uh, they actually have to be involved in and understand every step of the process. And I mean every step of the process. So that's, that's, a, that's a core principle that then goes into the methods, including one I started with, which was my approach to negotiations. 
I will say that is different. My mentors would say, well, Jane, you know, we said bring, you know, build a committee, invite everyone. Um, and they would later say, you know, Mac Levy, we didn't say to bring the whole fucking hospital. And I do. So um, <laughs> shift by shift, you know what I mean? Like I remember when my, my, the person who taught me how to negotiate, Jerry Brown, uh, not the governor of California, obviously a brilliant trade union leader who's retired and who coached me through negotiations. The first time he came, when I was out on my own and like under his wing and I had left 1199 New England and I was now on my own in Nevada, staring down my first strike alone, right? I was always running strikes under him, you know? And suddenly I was like, holy bejesus, there's going to be like thousands of workers whose jobs are on the line the minute they walk out. And holy shit, I'm like the chief negotiator and like lead strategist. Oh my God. So I remember begging him as we were getting, it was clear that this was an ideological fight. This boss was not going to back down. This was not about practical solutions, financial issues. And so I remember reaching out to him and just begging him to get on an airplane. Like I needed him to come see the room. I just needed like someone to hold my hands, literally like in, like see what I was doing. Cause I was, my teeth were beginning to, you know, chatter and grind at night and, oh my God, can I really do this? And he literally walked into negotiations. He landed in Nevada and they, he was like, they'll be so big. No one will notice me like the boss. I'm like, right. You just walk in the back and sit in the corner. And he walked in the back and sat in the corner. And of course, there's way too many people for the employer or anyone else to notice. And his comment when we, after we're done a long session, a hard session, debriefing with all the workers, you know, spent huge time brief and debrief before and after negotiations, every session, right? That's where the learning comes in besides setting up the questions to make the employer look like the absolute greedy asshole that they are properly just setting them up, you know, by the questions we ask. And he did say to me in the car that night late, that line, he said, Jesus, Mackley, I said, you know, build a big committee. I didn't say bring the whole hospital, but he walked in and there were like 400 workers in the room. So, um, and we were bargaining in a church and that did not come from them. Like my theory about creating the conditions that made workers feel safe also did not come from him, even though he was a devout Catholic. He had never bargained in church before. So, you know, all the strands, like the, the principle is what matters to the workers. If I have a lot of workers who belong to a faith or are faithful, which many workers are still, you know, it's just going to make them feel like the place we're going to walk into is on, you know, it's we're, we got God on our side. You know what I mean? So I'm happy to get anyone on our side. So organizing is about listening a lot, but it's not just about listening. You know, people say that. I'm like, yeah, it's not just about listening. It's also engaging and engaging people in active participation and making it so that they can actually participate meaningfully. And that means they have to understand every step of the process, right? And so to me, that's each method which then is like, how do you do a successful organizing conversation? How do you do something that we call wall charting? How do you teach the workers themselves to build a strong worksite structure? And so I use all these methods that are that involve paper and pencil and markers and dots and stickies. Um, and I ban the use of sophisticated computer printouts. Like, don't ever hand a worker a sophisticated printout with a bunch of names on it and give them assignment. Like, that's just not the way I think that you know, a worker who's skeptical about a union is going to come to understand their in a country power. with a narrative. They're not going to yes. understand their own power. Like, They're oh, not going to understand their own this power. For you. Oh my yes. God. Yes, exactly. And it's amazing to me because people say, well, we don't do this charting, this wall charting stuff where all the names are up and the workers are doing the work themselves because, you know, we just print out a list and give it to the shop steward or something. And then I spend a great deal of time explaining the difference between workers 
looking at a giant list on a wall and they themselves putting up the tag for who they got to do which part of the structure test and them looking at it and realizing they go from a 20% support to 30% support. Oh my God, we just broke 45. Now we're at 55. We call that a majority. Okay. She says super majority, super majority. We got to get to 90. And then it becomes their own extraordinary. They become the organizers, right? To make their own lives change. And that uh, is inherent in, in the principles I've learned, right? Is how yeah. do I, how, how can I really teach workers everything I know? And it's the how, right? It's it's why organising is all about the how. It's how people come to be able to do this work themselves. That's the lingering, that's the power of it. That's the transmission of power in a way. And also, I mean, the other thing that strikes me is what you mentioned earlier where you talked about all these workplaces that you work with having a mixture of Republicans and Democrats, conservative, you know, all these people with very different ways of seeing the world. Very different. Or, or opinions on climate change, workers in different industries that are vulnerable to climate change and have been given messages about it, its potential effects. People can come into a common agreement if they're in charge of the process and their interests are at the centre of the conversation about the process. It's all about how. I wish it was clearer to, 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 to yeah. others sometimes that the how is the game. It's the, how the whole thing changes. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah, it's so it's so true. And I, you know, I just well, anyway, we'll get to that later. But you know, I just feel like I, you know, I'm, I'm now at the point where I have, you know, the, these these emerging, you know, usually ultra leftist kind of hypercritics, and it just cracks me up. I, I every time someone takes me on now, I just say, okay, before you say one more word, tell me how many campaigns you ran and how many you won. None. Okay, stop talking. Like literally, stop talking. Yeah. You know, because I want you to talk to talk to me about numbers, workers, how many were involved, how many were on your committee, how did how did they themselves come to win the campaign? What was their you know academic language agency? To me, it's just participation. Like, were the workers and their concerns at the center of every single action you took? Because if they were, you're going to stand a hell of a better chance of winning than if they weren't. Yeah, yeah. We want to talk in the real. In sort of an empirical grounded world, I don't want to talk in ideological terms about this kind of stuff. I want to be right. feet on the ground. Let's make that, that work from there. So, look, Jane, it's a perfect picture, right? Like organising, I think it should be everywhere. What what stops it from being everywhere? What What are the obstacles to this kind of practice being the dominant practice in the global union movement? Shortcuts. <laughs> I mean, really, but, you know, I mean, I, I do, I mean, I, I do, I did get the time to sort of analyse there were several dominant sort of cultural norms that were shifting when I was being trained as a young organizer. I feel like I was like one of the last generations to get the kind of training I got. And then at least in the United States trade union movement, I'm sure about some things. I feel like I know Australia enough and the UK enough and now Germany enough. And now you know, there's enough countries where I'm doing very deep work where I, I'm finally confident to say, but not just in the U.S., that there was this global turn away from having faith in workers in the working class. There was this idea that you could replace organizers and organizing with really sophisticated corporate analysis, that you could do brand damage and a very sophisticated top-down, you know, the air war. There's all this language in the labor movement, like we're going to do the air war. And then there's going to be a little bit of a ground war. And remember, I'm the daughter of a fighter pilot. You know what I mean? So I'm like, air war my ass. The air war is to cover the troops on the ground who are, you know, like, you don't even know what, you don't even know what you're talking about when you say air war and ground war. But anyway, so, and all of it was so 
has been so offensive. It just actually offends me. Um, the idea that you replace, like, what is the point of the work if you're replacing the workers in the campaign, right? I mean, by 2008, I would walk around mumbling with a lot of organizer friends and say, oh, they're launching another workerless worker campaign. Like, literally, a campaign that involves no workers to organize workers through some top-down deal that they're going to cut through legal maneuvering, brand damage, crashing the shareholder prices. And by the way, it left a lot of workers very confused by 2016 in the United States about who to pull the lever for, right? Like, literally, in, in the national labor movement, let's just say in some of our dominant unions, the departments of organizing, the departments of collective bargaining, the departments of representation, all three departments were literally wiped out and replaced by full-time elite staff or staff researchers. Um, now, I have nothing against a good researcher, believe you me, but it can't be a replacement for what has to be the center of the work. And so then why, why did they do this? They thought it would be easier. I think a lot of them have straight-up contempt for workers, to be perfectly blunt about it. It's messier when we teach workers every tool we know so that they can win a campaign and then win another one once we you know, once I leave, because I'm not staying, I want them to know everything that they can possibly know so that they're ready for their next round of bargaining two or three years away. And so if you teach all the workers all of those skills, they're going to run for office against you if you're a not good trade union leader. You know, I used to think it was more complicated and the older I get, I'm starting to think it actually is pretty simple. Workers really understanding how to run a campaign can become very threatening uh, to a lot of people who would much rather sit down with the president of the United States, have a cocktail, feel important, uh, sit on a big commission, you know, and make commitments on behalf of workers that the workers have no idea the commitment is being made on their behalf. I just, I think it hasn't gotten us to a very good place. And I think the longer, we're de still debating it, 72 million, 73 million votes that Trump got. I, I don't care what's, what, I don't really care if it was 70 million. I'll just call it 70 to be safe. That's about 50 million too many. You know what I mean? I can accept 20 million maybe voting for a, someone who wants to kill them. But there's something very, 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 very wrong that so many people in the working class, by which I mean a multiracial, you know, gendered working class, right? Textured working class. There's something really wrong when those kind of numbers are pulling the lever for someone. And you'd think, you'd think, Every time I think, okay, well, this is, the, this is what's going to make everyone realize we have to go back to doing radical, popular, and political education. And we do that not as a standalone session at our convention. We do it in negotiations every day. We do it in the organizing campaign every day. Our radical, popular, and political education happens through our campaigns. It's not a separate education program that some person in the corner desk is like running in between something that workers don't care about. Just going to show up at the political education program discussion. Like, really, right? Political education happens in the work. People learn their boss is an asshole in a campaign. People learn that they're, if you're doing your work right, they learn that not just is the boss on the third shift an asshole, but we're going to help them understand who that boss is connected to in their community and that he's connected to a set of landlords who actually are evicting them. Now it's going to get interesting, right? Now they're going to start to do these little two plus two things. And it's not because we're going to say your boss is a jerk and connected to a whole series of landlords who are evicting you and your family. We're just going to start to do some sessions in the middle of negotiations in a caucus when everyone's sitting right up and super interested. And we're just going to show their connections. We're just going to put up a slide 
and like show their connections. And then someone in the room is going to say, oh, wait, I live in a piece of property by that guy. And it's like, oh, yeah, super sorry. They're killing you at, jo- at your job and they're killing you in the neighborhood too. You know what I mean? So I thought in 2016, I thought, okay, finally, okay, finally, you know, Trump, uh, s- s- what, you know, what, you know, it, I mean, yeah, there, did they, did, were there complexities to the election? Yeah. By the way, he won. So last I looked at the end of the day, he, he took the country, he took three states he should never have taken because workers have, because we've been running workerless worker campaigns for 20 years in the United States. And it's a goddamn shame. And I, it needs to stop. Yeah. So this is my thought though, like the idea that, that the sort of anti-democratic practice in the union sounds institutional, like almost what you're describing is like the iron law of oligarchy. Like not that I'm saying you can't undo it. You talk in no shortcuts about how you can undo it, but how can we undo that at scale? Like that you document some spectacular unions, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union, the LA Teachers Union, like there's clearly some amazing unions out there, but how does that scale? Like how does that move faster than it? I mean, I know no shortcuts, it moves as fast as, as it does, but is there a way for it to move at a, at a greater rate than it is at the moment? How does, how do we overcome these obstacles? I think it, I think we are scaling up. I think the number of the pace of change is happening much more quickly, I think, at the local union level. And I think that is where it has to happen. I think it's, you know, whether it's LA teachers, I mean, Chicago teachers sort of start it. LA teachers will say that, well, they started it before Chicago. Oh, anyway, sure. You know, I bet they're both brilliant. It's fine by I me. Lo- I know. I'm like, great. You're all great. Okay, good. Who went first? Okay. Anyway, so I think the understanding is that, you know, is that the change is going to happen from below. And if you look at just the teachers' unions, just Chicago and Los Angeles being having a really profound leadership change from stale, boring, cynical about workers, go get the deal done with no one involved kind of leaders to mass participation, high participation locals. They're the second and third largest teachers unions in in the United States, Chicago and LA, New York being number one. That's got a longer trajectory right now, I think, but for some complicated reason about all the retirees who can vote. It's very, very fascinating anti-democratic union. There's more retirees who can vote in the New York Teachers Union election than there are teachers, but it's a detail. So anyway, but if you look at just Chicago and Los Angeles, that's already changing national policy. I mean, there, the reaction to the national union leadership, you know, again, I have a lot of respect for, for a lot of their work, but the national union leadership in the American Federation of Teachers went through an internal struggle so that they could never again do an early endorsement of any presidential candidate without deep engagement and a vote of the convention. That's a, that's a huge change. And that's two locals, right? Changing national union policy in a very good way. So can it happen faster? I, we need it to. I mean, we need it to, Right. I think for my part, the evolution in the last year and a half into these, you know, 8,000 person at a time um, online courses is, I think it has actually significantly scaled up a lot of, a lot of local union level people's understanding of what's supposed to be happening in their unions. So that's, you know, that's one approach. Um, and we're going to, in the next round, you know, we're under really interesting discussion. We had such huge participation in the Workers Rising Everywhere round of the Rosa Luxemburg trainings. We do really extensive debriefs with like unions who come, any, anyone, any institution that comes in with large numbers. Now we do these really interesting, great debriefs afterwards. And there were some of the most active participants who came in from India were 
as described by their own union, uh, you know, not low literate or non literate. We had like thousands of workers showing up at different moments. Hundreds of their leaders were showing up who come from the farm workers union, who come from unions where they're not even using words. And so they got a lot out of a verbal program, it turned out. It was really interesting, right? And the participation and the breakout. But I'm, I'm even more challenged now, and I think we'll see it by next year. We're actually working on developing a version of the training manual that actually doesn't really have words. What do you um, mean by that? Doesn't have so, words? What do you mean? Yeah, graphic, like a graphic illustration okay. of all of the, the core, you know, so the core methods we teach, right, are what I call organic leader identification, step one. You know, who's, who's a pro-union activist already or just an activist versus who's a leader who's not convinced about the union, but they really, you know, if they decide to move their whole department's going to move, their whole shift is going to move, their whole school is going to move, depending on the scenario. And then step two, you know, is semantics and and then it evolves into a structured organizing conversation. How do you get really good at that? Yes, there are plenty of things that ordinary workers can learn about how to be effective with their coworkers. When I get debated on the left sometimes and people are like, workers know how to talk to each other. I'm like, yeah, no shit. But they actually don't know how to get a really hard to move colleague actually over that really hard to move colleagues objections. And then when they go through a little training work during caucus negotiation time, during negotiations, they come back every time like, wow, it worked. So to me, I just have to diverge on this for a minute, but it's like the idea that workers don't that workers just wake up formed and know how to do this is like insulting oh, this and obnoxious. Is hard, right? Anyone who's actually had a bunch of conversations, you know, at work or in a workplace or right, any with actual like, if workers, you've never done it. You know how bloody hard it is, and having a sort of support and structure and coaching and how to do it. People who the people who haven't done it, they haven't done it. <laughs> yeah. It's not impossible. Yeah. It's just like a little bit of teaching. Lots of yeah. things require teaching in life. Just so does this. Yeah. It's not impossible no, at all. No. Yeah. It's not impossible at all. And it goes back to, you know, do you have faith in people's capacity? And I do. Kevin Chilton, this fantastic nurse in Tower 8, who kept trying to move his Tower 6. Uh, it was a big fight in Philadelphia at a big hospital, big union busters, the whole nine yards war. And I just remember he was resisting the idea that he, he himself sort of thought very innocently, you know, thought a lot of his own capacity and thought that he could just move the units and get to majorities. And we were like, go for it, man. I mean, go for it. You know, he's clearly leading some people. So, and then he would complain about like, I, this is like the third time I talked to her and she's not moving. And then we, I just remember this day when we finally said, okay, Kevin, so do the, do the role playing with us. Actually do some prep. Let's see what you're doing. But just get in front of the room in a fishbowl. Let's just see what you're doing. I, I play, I'm going to play the worker and you come at me. I'm from Tower 6, which is hard to move, and he's in Tower 8. I'm like, come at me, just with your, whatever you're saying to them. You know, he just started to talk at me, you know, about all the reasons that the union was going to be this great thing. And I just said, cut, stop. You can't just go talk at your coworkers. Like, you actually have to start by asking, you know, if you could change one thing about work tomorrow, what would it be? The, 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 the question I've asked a bazillion times in my life and immediately like once, you know, connected to the issue, stick to her issue. And then he came in, like, I think I told this, maybe I told it in the new book. I'm not sure, but he literally came in, like he had turned all of his new membership cards and new membership cards signed into a fan. You know, and he walked into negotiations three days later and he was fanning himself. 
like so proud, like a peacock. And he was like, 12, I got 12. And I just learned how to ask questions. (laughs) It's amazing, you know, and, and, and and hook their issue to why. Yeah, yeah, the process. Hook it to why, you know. Yeah, sales, sales people, advertising hasn't done our people well. Right, sort of, we'll come in and pitch it. No. Not helped at all, really. No, and P- and I have people frequently say, "Oh, I was in sales once." If you're applying for a young organizer job, I was in sales once. I just like the resumes done. On move on because there's no adjusting someone who spent a bunch of time in sales. Yeah, it's too rough. Okay, so I've got one more question in our delightful in our delightful conversation. Gosh, it's been fa- fa- fascinating. I, I guess I'm, I want to ask you to reflect. You know, you've you've written those two, well, three, sorry, rocking books. Two um, more, they're not really academic, but just two, two with references and one without. And you've you keep fighting campaigns. You know, that's what I, I, I love about your work is that you're always in the mix of the action and the and the reflection. But when you sit now, you know, we're in we're in in 2021, what do you, what do you think has been the most enduring lesson that you've learned from across your career doing this kind of work? The methods work and the methods are tied to a set of principles and the principles start with genuine undying faith in people's capacities. And if we start there and we follow methods that have worked for over 150 years, that was the nice thing about academia was me getting time to just read, which I never do if I'm running a campaign, you know, except for like wall charts and contract language. So, and the daily news, that's it, you know? Uh, so putting the, going, being able to reach back into the 1930s in the United States and 20s and 10s, and then an even earlier period in the later 1800s, and then the rise of the public sector again in the, in the late 60s and 60s, you know, it's just, there are these periods when workers are winning and all the methods are connected. They're not different. They're not innovative. We don't need innovation. I hate that word. I have to tell you something. I've come to hate the word innovation. My favorite word is winning. My least favorite word is innovation. That's not what we need. We need way more people appreciating that with just a little bit of skill, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of education, a little bit of coaching, people are actually capable of doing extraordinary work and we need it desperately. So, you know, I think you've, you are yourself very smart and very committed to this work. And I appreciate the work that you've done. And I think that, you know, you've, you've hit on the, the questions I would reflect on several times for a reason, which is you also care and that matters. And it's why I was very happy to finally be able to sit down with you. So yeah, I think it's have faith in people and then acknowledge that, there are steps. There are methods. I mean, we accept if we're going to go run a political campaign, if we're going to build a house, if we're going to rebuild our port, like what, bake a pie, whatever it is, there are steps. And when you take them, they, not 100% of the time, but I'm going to argue about 85, 90% of the time actually work. And we need that kind of win rate. We need win rates of 85 and 90% in every campaign. Like we need the odds to shift quickly and they can. And I think that the, I think we're going to try and put, you know, there's a sort of fourth book is actually out. We just didn't put it out as a book and that might have been a little mistake, but whatever I might, it might get come out as a book now, but you know, the big and open negotiations report that we published for free online a couple of months ago at UC Berkeley, that's like the next passion because that again, just shows, it shows the methods working again. It's case study based. It's just four case studies, five case studies, 
I weave the Philadelphia one and out of it, but four case studies. I'm not involved in the campaigns. They're extraordinary campaigns. And once again, it's a bunch of workers following methods that we've known about for a hundred years plus. And when we do them, we win and we need to win. We need to win. Jay McAlevey, what a joy to have you on the program. People must read your books, including the one that is online. I've seen it on your website and it was just such a delight to talk with you today. Thank you so much. It's my total pleasure. Really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Amanda. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walkerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.